0: Was rushing to get out here for that first song. It is well with my soul. Second Kings this evening, chapter thirteen. You know, God's people just like to hear the Bible preached on, and I, um, I'm one. I missed those conferences in California when Chuck Smith was still alive, and just uh, sitting through. Three or four services a day or more. What a blessing it was. Well, a lot of information this evening. And God can keep you from becoming overwhelmed, as he can help me not overwhelm you. God can get his point across that he loves you in spite of heavy information. And, of course, the devil always wants to counter this and slander the individual to make them feel unwelcomed and unloved by God. <clears throat> and of, uh, to me, uh, well, to all of us who believe, we know God is not surprised by our sin and our shortcomings. We are surprised by his willingness to love us still and use us. And rather than get bogged down this evening with the names of the kings, I'll try to concentrate on the events because there are lessons here that await us. The title this evening is Elisha Dies, We won't get to that until the second half of what's going on. But now we're going back in time. There's no chronological order with these uh, historians in the Old Testament, and you just have to get used to it. We um, covered the history of of the king and the false queen, the illegitimate queen, in chapters 11 and 12 in Judah. Now we're going back to the north. So we look at verse 1, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, sorry, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. I almost want to tell you, don't listen to me while I'm reading these names. We're about 835 years before the coming of Christ. Syria is the nation that is scourging both north and south ki- southern kingdoms. Both these kings, we have two kings here in, in verse 1, Joash in the south, king of Judah, and Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, in the north. And because of their rebellious behavior towards God, the Lord let the, the, Lord let the Syrians come upon them. Uh, they, You know, and they just they never figured it out. Verse 2, it continues, And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Well, he, this is talking about Jehoahaz, the king in the north. That's the one that did evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed the sins of Jeroboam. Um, more of the same, almost boring, you know, oh, look, another apostate king. Oh, another king that thumbs his nose at God, and then when he gets in trouble, asks for God to come and help him. Uh, this is the, the case with people. So some of us were guilty of this before we came to know the Lord. This routine selfish ambition that surfaces, these evil passions that make mockery of Yahweh, we would expect this from the Syrians, but from the Hebrews. It is such a disappointing surprise every time. It never, it never gets uh, old with our surprise, our disappointment, when we read these things in, in the scripture. Referencing Jeroboam, the first king of the north, going back many years, it says, who made Israel sin. Uh, he did not depart from them. Uh, in other words, this present king, Jehoiaz, is following right along with the sins introduced by Jeroboam in the north, all of the kings in the north continued this in some form, some fashion of rebellion. Uh, some in the south also, but at least in the southern kingdom, there were righteous kings. The historians never let us forget it. It's as though when the men were writing this history, they they just you know we, we're gonna just don't forget to put Jeroboam in because that creep is the. Maybe they didn't feel that way, but I would have felt that way. Uh, But they they never let us lose sight of this, because it was a big deal. Satan knows men will sacrifice truth to imagination. Never mind the truth, I like what this sounds like more. I'd rather make something up. Fiction is more exciting than truth. So the devil says, and so people believe. When you make imagination your God... You kill the ability to reason correctly. Otherwise, intelligent people become irrational when it comes to talking about Christ and the Bible. And a defective imagination will suppose that fiction does sound better than the truth. Who needs reason? If you like it, that's reason enough. Choosing to serve what mankind has created over what the Creator has said Himself. You know, this is the case with every false religion. And you say, well, what makes your religion true? Well, we say the Bible. And you say, well, what makes the Bible true? Well, the facts. You line up the prophecies, for example. You line up the the history, the archaeology, and it overcomes all of them. But most folks don't want to take time to consider it. The consequences are severe. This king, he Jehoiaz, he also does not depart. The sin of Jeroboam, refers to what is called syncretism. It's a fancy word. I don't care for it. But I want you to not care for it either. And you'll read it in commentaries or you'll hear preachers use it. I I prefer the word leaven. But that's all it means. You've just mixed in to truth junk. You've poisoned the well. And you expect people to drink from that well and enjoy it. This is what syncretism is. This is what Jeroboam did. He took the truth of Yahweh. Yes, Yahweh led you out of Egypt and brought you into the promised land. This is his image, this calf. This is what we're going to worship him through when he strictly forbade them from doing this. And not only did they do it, they got away with it amongst themselves. And this is why the historian says that Jeroboam The son of Nabat that made Israel sin. You know, some of the dads are linked right with their evil sons. Judas Iscariot, you know, his father is linked with him. Uh, Not in every case, but often enough to raise an eyebrow. Often enough to consider. Because we know that when we look at the scriptures, God's speaking to us through what has been recorded. In verse 3, it continues, "...then the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel." And he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, King of Syria, and into the hand of Ben Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. Well, that's true. While these kings were on the throne, the fighting with Syria just was did not stop. It will eventually, and then it just then then the Assyrians are coming, and then the Babylonians are coming, uh, then the Romans will come. And it, it just all because of how they treated God. Uh, And that's not the worst thing that happened to them. The worst thing that happened to those idolaters was death and then stand before a holy God that said, why would you do it when I told you not to do it? Uh, it's It's a separating factor. So the anger of the Lord is aroused against Israel for no new reason. They didn't come up with something creative. Hey, let's really wow God and impress him with how idolatrous we can be. It was the same sin over and over again. Satan is not that creative. He doesn't have to be. Men will fall for whatever he waves in front of them one way or another. You make it shiny enough, made it, make it sweet enough. You put butter and sugar on anything, and it eventually it's going to taste good. Well, within the food categories. There are some things that won't. I won't mention because I know some of you like them. Eric, are you here tonight? <laughs> well, when you get the pulpit, you can pick on some people you love and know they still love you. Anyway, coming back to, to this, uh, man says, if God does not conform to me, to man, then I'll have to find another God. Where were you going to get one? Amazon Prime. <laughs> I'll just make one up. That's exactly this is the truth. I'm just simplifying. This is exactly what mankind does rendering truth irrelevant because God's not conforming. Most of human history has done this. It says here in verse 3, And he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria. Still talking about Jehoiaz, the king of the northern kingdom. Remember, Israel of the kingdom split because of Rehoboam and Solomon. It says here in verse 3 at the bottom, And into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. So Ben-Hadad is a title it means the, the son of Hadad. Hadad was a pagan god. It's not calling dad. <laughs> well, it's kind of cute. Some of these names are sentences. Hey, dad. I mean, but anyway, uh, it's a pagan god and it's showing deference to their, their homemade deities. A frequent Syrian title Hazael had killed a Ben Hadad, another king, to take the throne from him. Uh, All their days, uh, these conflicts were going on. Blessings were withdrawn by Yahweh, as he warned them he would do, resulting in this prolonged period of conflict with Syria and the constant defeats and loss of territory and lives that went with it. Verse 4, so uh, Jehoiaz pleaded with Yahweh, and Yahweh listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Well, here is the spiritual fick- fickleness of man, and the extraordinary mercy of God. This is a flash in the pan. He pleaded with Yahweh. He does because the pressure's on. But he's going to go right back to his old ways after God helps. We see this acted out. We don't have to look at this as well. That never happens. It happens all the time, as has been said. No atheists in foxholes. While the shelling's going on, they're calling out to God. Then the shelling stops. They come out, I'm okay now, and back to being an atheist. This, uh, again, flash in the pan, nothing more. It says, and Yahweh listened to him. Yeah, because of the people, because of the plight on the people. It's the mercy of God. Just because God shows the mercy doesn't mean he approves of the behavior. Psalm 85, the psalmist wrote, But you, O Lord are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. A lot of people like to leave that part out. They just want the compassion. You stick around life long enough and you begin to say, well, if God is so merciful, why am I so miserable? Well, the curse is on us all, like gravity. The curse is a blanket on the earth, on humanity, and we have to cut through it. If, If if some can get it right in the spite of this misery and still love and worship God, then what's the excuse of the others? Isaiah 55. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What do you mean while he may be found? Is he going somewhere? No, but you are. You can drop, drop dead. Then it be too late. You won't be able to call upon him. You'll miss the moment. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, Isaiah wrote this years after these events, but it's been true throughout the existence of God, which is eternal. Isaiah 30, again, woe to the rebellious children, uh, says Yahweh, who take counsel, but not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin they don't come to me they call out they go to anybody else but they won't come to me he continues in verse 4 and he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them so God again showing mercy in an attempt to appeal to the reason of the people so that the individual person would say this is God it's just his mercy he knows we've been resisting him scoffing at him and he's reaching out to us, and the righteous would say, okay, now I'm going, to, I'm going to up my loyalty to God. And the unrighteous, of course, will take what they can get and go on their way, not even bother to say thank you. Reason would say, if I'm receiving his mercy, I'm going to start being excited about him. How many of you, when you sing about the mercy and love of God, do you become moved in the spirit? Alms go up. You know, certain songs, you know, you just know that it's going to register with the believers more than just other parts. Not that no slight on the other parts, but they just certain highlights of a song that hit the target. A lot of, you know, amazing grace. How sweet the sound It saved. A wretch like me. It takes a Christian to own it. That's what, to say, yeah, from God's perspective, that is what I am. Maybe not from people, from other people, but from God, a holy God, I am wretched because I am a sinner. And yet, the arm extends out to me. Come, come to me, all you who will to be saved. Well, many would never give God that satisfaction, deploring his mercy. they just, I'm not going to give him... You know, I, again, I don't believe in a, that atheist exists. I don't mean to be humorous with it, although I think it is humorous. But if you say, I don't believe God exists, I say, no, I don't believe you believe that. I think you're lying to yourself, and then you're lying to me. The Bible says, "The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You have to be a fool. And you, you, what you're saying, actually, is you know there is a God, and you don't like him. And you're going to get him. And what a better, what, is there a better way than to ignore someone, to just totally ignore them? Again, that's what Christ did to Herod. Verse 5, then, we haven't even gotten to Elijah's death yet, speed it up, you're slowing me down. <clears throat> then Yahweh gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before." Now, this forms verses five and six form a parentheses, as did chapters eleven and twelve, talking about the kings. And then all of a sudden we get the king, uh, the kings of the north. Then all of a sudden we get the kings of the south. This is common, and if you um, you know you, you get if you start studying, you're getting twisted up, and it forces you to build charts and, and study. Well, anyway, uh, this is a parentheses because he's summarizing what happened with the Syrians in Israel. And if you don't recognize that, then you may think there are contradictions when that is not at all the case. Verse 7 tells us of the havoc the king of Syria wrought amongst the Jews. So the king's prayer, though heard, it was not answered at once. It's going to be rolled out. Joash, this king, Jehoiaz, his son, will be the first partial deliverer from the Syrians. And he warred with them for 16 years, retook cities that his father lost to them. He also went to Jerusalem and plundered Jerusalem. I know. You see, this is a Hebrew plundering Jerusalem? What is wrong with these people? It, it, it's, it's like the Baptist going to beat up the, the, you know, the Methodists. It's like, what, is, what are you Christians? What are you doing? Well, we're only Christians on Sunday morning. It's okay to beat up everybody afterwards. Anyway, um, well, if you're a Methodist, let me reverse it. It's like the Methodist going to beat up the Baptist. This way we have equal, equal beatdowns uh, in Christianity. Well, uh, where was I? This deliverance, again, summarizing it. We don't know who this deliverer is by name uh, there are there are some options we have I think it's a military figure or well here are the options you can you can say well it was Elisha uh, his influence that eventually led to the deliverance you can say it was the Assyrians because you see the Syrians you have us have the Syrians then you have the Assyrians because they had to outdo the Syrians So they put another A, an as in front of theirs. (laughs) I'm being goofy because it's like, can't you just get more distinct with these things, historians? Another historians. Anyway, let me wind it back some, let's unconfuse you. Syria is attacking both the northern and southern kingdom of Israel because of their rebellion against God. In time, the Assyrian Empire, which is to the northeast of Syria, get strong, and they become the menace in the area and the eventually the, the, the power. So much so that Syria will join with the northern kingdom to fight against the aggression of Assyria, and they will say to Judah, hey, join us too. The three of us can fight these guys. And Judah says, no, I'm going with the Assyrians because I don't think you can take him. It's all this politicking going on, and that is Isaiah chapter 7. When we're, we're not there, and uh, be happy about that. Anyway, the third figure of the Syria Elijah, Jeroboam the second, uh, the, the grandson of this king that we've been talking about, he eventually uh, extends the boundaries and defeats the Syrians, but he remains a pagan idolater, nonetheless. So they escaped from under the hand of the Assyrians. And that is a summary of what is going on. It will, um, 80 years later, again, the, the Assyrians will, will come along and be a menace in the area. At the end of verse 7, it says, And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. And so the summary concludes with a peaceful people living outside the refuge of walled cities because the Syrians are no longer coming against them. But there's no time stamp on this. This is you know, spread out over a long period of time, this struggle. The, after Elisha dies, the Moabites are going to be a, a problem. So let's move on to verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. The historian gives it to him again. But walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. Well, the founder of idolatry in the north, Jeroboam, he'd rather keep his kingdom than his salvation. That's what it came down to. He saw the people were still going to Jerusalem to worship. He said, I don't stop that. Their allegiance is going to be confused. But God promised you we're going to be all right. That wasn't good enough. When God's promises aren't good enough, there's trouble. So he is the forefather of figurine worship in the northern kingdom. And, of course, I mean that disparagingly. Um, they continued to attend the Golden Calf Centers in the cities of Dan and Bathsheba. You know, the city of Dan, the archaeologists have unearthed it, and you can go to it, see it today, it's, it's just really beautiful. And you get to see the gates of the city that the Bible makes such a fuss about, you know, in the gates of the city. And you see it, and say, that's that's where the war councils were, that's where the city hall was, it was... It um, is exciting to see it. Well, Dan was one of those pagan centers, and to this day there are those uh, archaeological evidences of their pagan worship. But um, they made these centers of worship, Dan and Bathsheba, north and south, uh, to sidestep Jerusalem. It would be like someone claiming to be a Christian and worshiping with the Jehovah's Witnesses of the Mormons, who clearly are not Christians. The Mormons went out of their way when they began and said, we're not Christians. We are Mormons. And then they found out, we well, you know, we need to recruit more people. And the recruiting is down, so they changed the name to Latter-day Saints. Well, they didn't change it, but they emphasized that part. Then they found we can do a little bit more, so they downsized it to um, not LSD, but LDS. <laughs> and uh, what's the difference? Uh, so, you know, to, to mess with people's heads like, like the colonel did, Colonel Sanders Used to be Kentucky fried chicken, but people said that's fattening. Well, let's call it KFC. Oh, well, that's better. I just lost 50 calories. <laughs> so he said, you know, that stuff is how it is. Uh, and coming back to this, uh, both the northern and southern kingdoms, were, of course, were, were denying Yahweh. Uh, contrary to his clear words, they were blatantly rejecting his revealed truth. By saying, These are your gods, when God said, You shall have no images before. Don't go painting pictures of me, thinking I look like that. Imagine if someone did that to you. Even if it was flattering, if you say, Wow, that is a handsome figure, uh, but I'm not that handsome, you'd be insulted because, you know, unless you're comfortable with lies, (laughs) you might say, I like this. Then that would make you a PR man. But coming back, uh, that would be Hollywood there's nothing out there that's real except the insanity. So uh, coming back, uh, who made Israel sin? So again, the men that scoffed at the Bible, but w- they walked in, they walked in them these sins of Jeroboam the first. and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. Well that wooden image was a lewd representation. There were sexual uh, explicit sexual, things about it. The King James says it this way, the old King James, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. Well, the translators, they favor grove or image because they're giving us an interpretive rendering, which is sometimes a pain in the neck, but other times it's like, thank you, I needed that. It should read uh, that they walked, they went with, with Ashtoreth, That's what it says in the Hebrew. But if you're a common reader to the scripture, you don't know who Ashtoreth is, and so then you have to do your work. So the translators, most of them, feel that they're helping the casual reader understand what was going on. And it it is a, a, a help to them, perhaps, but to those who are educated readers, it's quite annoying. Because we say, that's not what it says in the Hebrew. Why didn't you just put the name? Um, I don't mind these interpretive renderings, the idioms that they have to deal with. It's a, it's a, in, in a Herculean task. Well, wait a minute, that was a pagan. Uh, a false god, right? But it was a huge task. Uh, what I would like from translators is more consistency. So that the word hand is always translated as hand and not mix it up sometimes and say it's a limb. That just sends me to the concordance. So anyway, there's nothing uh, to fuss about. The truth is all there. None of the truth is lost. These places, there were wooden images there for Ashtoreth. Uh, this, there were groves where these actions were, took place. There's no uh, deception going on. It's a struggle of trying to take a foreign language in a foreign age and make it understandable to an audience who really is unfamiliar with the history. Uh, uh, I don't know. That, that, oh, one other thing about this, this is, one of, this is the capital city of the northern kingdom, and they had these centers all over the, the northern kingdom. There were some in Judah, too. But it wasn't just a Dan and Bathsheba. If you wanted calf worship, but if that wasn't your flavor, if you'd like another form of fake gods, then we have these other little centers, like little pit stops on the way. You know, you, you drive around town, you see these little white boxes for you know, uh, you know George Washington once w- w- parked here or something like that. It's a historical thing. Well, in Israel, you you could you could sacrifice at, at one of these uh, pit stops along the way. Verse 7, for he left left of the army of Jehoiaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at thrashing. So again, this is a summary. Verses 6 and 7 are parentheses in the midst of God's deliverance. This is what was going on. They were ultimately delivered, but before then, He stripped down that army, so the king had just enough of a military force to maintain order amongst his people, but he could not uh, launch an invasion or protect them from one at that point. Verse 8. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And this is a record of the kings of Israel also. This is an additional record he refers to that God felt was not worth keeping. Uh, Now, the death of this king is uh, recorded here, but he comes back up in chapter 14. So, again, the chronology is going to be a sequence all over the place. Verse 9, so Jehoiaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, that pagan town. Then Joash's son reigned in his place. Nothing to boast about that king. He he died a Hebrew who lived in opposition to the God of the Hebrews. A sad note, and he's not the only one. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. Okay, so I said, we're not going to get tied up on the name. Suffice it to say, this is his son. And, there, there, there are eight people, eight men, named Joash, also extended as Jehoash, in the Old Testament. Are you getting this? Because I know you've been waiting for that. There, there is the Joash, who was the king in the south, at the same time that the king in the north had the same name. Uh, I mean, this is not God's doing. He didn't name these, these people. But this is how it was. And uh, so you, you just have to struggle through it. It might help you to understand even historians struggle through it. Uh, all, everybody does. You have to make these charts, and you go back and adjust the charts. You know how much room you need space to put the scriptural references, so you go back later and look at it and say, you know, where did I get that? How did I know he was king for 40 years? And you, you just so you he's constantly working if you're a Bible teacher, because you want to be able to communicate these things to where not only do the people understand, but it doesn't become a hindrance to God speaking through the message. Verse thirteen or verse 11. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, number three, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. So this guy was really had his teeth gritting. He had to use a, uh, a uh, mouth guard to write this. So he didn't grind his teeth <laughs> so hard that he you know, killed one of them. Uh, had I lived in the northern kingdom at this time, I think I would have tried moving to Judah or, or Egypt or anywhere. But I don't think I would have wanted to stay in the northern. The northern Israel is beautiful. Uh, it's just lush and it's just a beautiful place. But the um, they idolatry soured it. Now we come to verse 12. We have got about 20 minutes, 25, 30. Can I get 35, 40 minutes to go? Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Well, we want to read all of this so together. We don't want to leave anything out. We can do that when we get to Chronicles chapter 1. Verse 13, So Joash rested with his father's, then Jeroboam sat on his throne and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So the Jehu dynasty, this goes back to Jehu, the madman of the north, his four sons, he, this is the third one to die. He's got one more Zechariah and his dynasty is over as prophet, promised by God through the prophets. Um, during Jeroboam II, then Jeroboam sat on the throne, and it says here in verse 13, the prophets Hosea and Amos had their ministries. And uh, you can find out what the people of God had to go through with those guys, uh, with that king on the throne. You've got to love Amos. Amos was from the south. He, he's, he moves to the north. <laughs> kind of a reverse of a Yankee, right? And, and he gets up there, and, and they want him to go back to the south. Stop preaching. We don't want to hear it anymore. A very powerful prophet, Amos, was. Um, verse 14, Elisha had become sick with an illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Well, this is quite moving. Now, if you don't know who Elisha is, uh, you would have had to have read the preceding chapters to find out that he was a great prophet in, in the north. He was the disciple of the other great prophet, Elijah, who's long gone to heaven. And now, Elisha, who's very old, he's in the 70s, 80s now, uh, pro- over 50 years of ministry. And uh, we'll get to some of that just briefly. But this is another parenthetical section to kings. It's okay, while we're talking about the kings, let's stop for a moment. And let's get back to Elijah. And the, this will be through the, of course, we'll resume in the next chapter, this, even at the end of this one. But anyway, um, this is out of sequence because Joash, the king who comes and weeps over him, in verse 13, is already said to have died. So you see, you pick up the parenthesis. A scoffer would come along. That's contradicting and you're contradicting and irritating and that shirt doesn't go with those pants so anyway (laughs) uh, it is unbiblical it is flat out unbiblical to assign sickness and death to a lack of faith you just don't have enough faith well I hope I have enough energy to go upside your head if you say that to me again Uh, no that's not true we Christians can only fantasize about that (laughs) And we're not supposed to do that either. I love you, brother. Uh, anyway, Dave Hunt. I'll have a quote here. I don't think I quote Dave Hunt enough. He too is with the Lord. Sure, it'd be nice if God sent another Dave Hunt who could so articulate and meticulous research the truths of Christianity against so much blubbering that's going out blabbering. Dave Hunt says, to say that failure to be healed results from too little prayer and fasting is false. That teaching implies that we can cause God to do whatever we pray for if we pray and fast long and hard enough. In other words, that we can impose our will upon Him. What about God's will? It also suggests that God's will is to heal everyone every time. On the contrary, He has something better for us than perpetuating our lives endlessly in these bodies of sin. I could have said it better, but I opted to let Dave have a little of the limelight. Uh, Actually, he's just an amazing brother. um, And I'm glad to have lived in a time where God used him. Again, men will sacrifice reason for imagination. And we have these people going around in Christianity uh, preaching that, you know, God wants you healed, God wants you rich. Uh, Whether they know what they're talking about or not is irrelevant. It's a lie, and there's no excuse for it because the Bible does not teach these things. This is the great prophet Elijah, and he gets sick, and he's going to die. He's terminally ill at this point in his ministry. That again is over half a century. Now, how do we get this? These dates. Well, we would determine them by the amount of time we're told the kings reigned. Ahab reigned twenty-two years, and we know Elisha was ministering towards the end of Ahab's life. Ahaziah for two years, Jeroboam for twelve, Jehu for twenty-eight, Jehoaz for seventeen, Joash for sixteen, and he ministered within all of his six different kings. And that's how we, we get an idea of how old he was. Plus, he goes, he's balding. He's bald by the time he enters the ministry. If he's just starting to lose it, he's probably in his late 20s or something. And, and so you get an idea of where he where was. Anyway, he continues to prophesy while terminally ill. In fact, when he dies, after he's dead, his bones will even minister his body. And we'll come to that in a little bit. Uh, this is just such an uh, ageless an ministry. We haven't heard from him for 45 years. Again, dating by the kings. Not since chapter 9, when Jehu was anointed king. The prophet sends one of his servants, go anoint Jehu king and get out of there as fast as you can. And that's what he does. Well, why not? Because apostasy was exalted in, 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 in amongst the people in the northern kingdom. And that reduced uh, the, the ministry of the prophets, uh, they still ministered, they still functioned, but only within the circles of, of, of those who wanted to hear what they had to say. I remember, um, oh, I can't, I can't remember his name all of a sudden. Wilbur Smith. Wilbur Smith was a very uh, solid Christian writer and preacher back in the 50s, 60s. Had, at that time, perhaps the largest private Theological collection of books uh, in the world in English, and he was uh, hard, he couldn't see well. And there was another pastor that I know that was around when Wilbur Smith was ministering, and he goes to this Bible study Wilbur Smith is giving. And There aren't many people there, most of them old, uh, but the, the pastor is telling the story is relatively young. But the older guys had taken him under their wing, and he submitted to that willfully. And he says he went there, and Wilbur Smith, of course, is just reading uh, from his notes and, and preaching on the word. But he's just so disappointed. There was nobody there. There's, there's such knowledge of the scripture, so anointed. But there was no interest. And this is the case with Elisha at this point in his history. We don't hear from him because the interest was down. Everybody's at these pagan altars. Uh, and if they're not there, they're afraid to, to say, yeah, I, I serve Yahweh and, and not... Um, And rebuke their family members who were no doubt engaged in made up religion. Well, um, he's old and frail at this point, but still spiritually powerful and useful, as was Moses and Caleb and Simeon in the New Testament when they bring the, the baby Jesus into the temple. Anna was also. Uh, very useful to us, and we have their stories, and and each one is a sermon's worth. Um, So uh, that's an overview of where we are with Elijah at this moment. It says, then Joash the king came down to him. Well, news reached the palace. The prophet is dying, and he, you know, make ready my chariot, and his entourage heads to the house of of Elisha the prophet, and he weeps over his face. And we have no reason to doubt the sincerity behind this. Where the questions come is what? Well, he's, he's weeping over a national hero. He is not agreeing with the religion of Elisha. He respects it. He wants to cherry pick it. You know, it's an eclectic thing, that Satan will tell you. Just take out, you know, the best from the best and leave the rest. That's Satan's approach. Never mind the truth. Just pick what you like. And this is what he was doing. But he's sincerely coming um, intellectually, emotionally, patriotically. He's, he adores the prophet. He admires him, which aren't the same. You can adore someone and, and still have just you know, but the way they do things really. I just love that guy. But, man, he gets, does it wrong. Well, this in this case, is like he loved the prophet. He admired him just didn't go far enough he didn't go spiritually that was what was left out Christ put it this way to the church in Ephesus you've departed from your first love you got all these things right you have your, your soup kitchens and your pantries and you know you got all these things you're helping human needs with well you don't love me anymore anybody can do what you're doing but not anybody can love me and be called a church and this is what Christ was was facing with the church in Ephesus. Well, here, he, he loved him, appreciated him, um, understood what he meant to the nation, what he had accomplished. Jesus said it this way to the Pharisees. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You talk the religion, but you don't have it you're you you you're not there, and this is where the king was. He says, and said to him, oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and their horsemen. Well, this is what this dying prophet said to his teacher, his pastor, Elijah, when, when Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. This is what he said. So this was common knowledge. The people, it was like, you know, uh, you know a saying, like we have, remember the Alamo, something like that. Well, this was, you know, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel. He's putting it back on him. What an honor. He's honoring him with the honor he bestowed on the great prophet Elijah. Uh, it's very, very true because in what he is saying, you are the might of the nation. And Elisha, he could have said, Elisha could have said to him, well, if I'm the might, why don't you line up with me? See, again, the imagination Thinks it knows better than God, the defiled ma- imagination, the defective imagination. It thinks that uh, the fiction that it embraces is actually better than what God offers. And what they, very sophisticated it can be, can begin, well, I, I would believe the Bible, but, but what? What? You'd want God to come down and like shove them. What? <laughs> make them make understand, Lord. Why not use a little bit more pressure? Well, because God wants people to love him and it wouldn't be love if you just arbitrarily decided who's going to follow you. no such thing as love. Anyway uh, uh, he is the chariot of Israel. Those chariots were modern day you know equivalents to tanks and mechanized army equipment. verse 15 and Elijah said to him, take a bow and some arrows, so he took himself a bow and some arrows. Now, if he says this, when he shows up, he's, oh, man, Elijah is weeping at the chariot of Israel. And Elijah, like, yeah, 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 get me some arrows. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cute if it's happened that way. Like, I, look, I got to get this out before i dead. I'm dead. Uh, so while the king came to mourn, the prophet is going to prophesy. He lives to prophesy. You've come to mourn my death, but I'm still alive. And I've got something to say. And uh he, he's going to mess it up, the king. surprise, but we say, why so dramatic? Get some arrows. Well, there's attendance present. The king is not the only one. It's not a private meeting. Somebody's giving him the arrows and uh, and the bow. And they're not going to forget this scene and that's we, it's right here. We have somebody had to leave and tell the story and publish it and preserve it all under the hand of God, verse 16. Then he said to the king, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it, and Elijah put his hands on the king's hand. Is this not touching? I got a little teary-eyed thinking about it. Here's the prophet. He knows this king is a lost soul, is a bonehead, and he's still ministering to him, and it's a loving scene, and he puts his hands on the hands of the king as the king holds the bow because Elijah sees more than the king. He sees the nation. He sees the people. And this direct contact indicates the presence and the strength of God made available to this king, as with us. It goes all the way back to Joseph. Joseph's father, in blessing him, said this about him. He said, the archers have sorely sought him. The assassins have tried to take my boy out. But his bow remained in strength, Genesis 49, verse 24 and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. See, this is the kind of stuff that makes us adore God, makes us want Bible study, makes us want to share Christ with somebody, and why we feel so bad when we fail. And yet there's this loving God that says, I understand, I know, you're all messed up. I told you that from the beginning. You're so messed up I had to die to get you back. That's how messed up you are. We say thank you, and he says, oh, it's "No problem." Verse seventeen, and he does. God says he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He sees the cross, he sees the suffering. He says it's worth it. For if you're going to love me, I'll do it again. Kind of a sentiment. Verse seventeen, and he said, "Open the east window." The prophet telling the king, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, "Shoot!" You know, Elijah can't get up. Evidently. And he shot, and he said, the arrow of Yahweh's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphex till you have destroyed them. Remember, these Assyrians, they were madmen, killing people. This is not just like, oh, it's them versus us. Eastward, towards the land that Hazael had already conquered and taken territory, Elisha says, pull the trigger. He's in command. He's telling the king what to do. The king's taking orders from the man of God. And he said, the arrow of the Lord, the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. You must strike the Syrians at Aphex two. You have destroyed them. So he's making, he's driving this point home. God's might to completion. He doesn't want him tinkering with the enemy He wants to get this done. Verse 18. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Well, he just told the king, you you need to just do this to completion, to destroy these people. You must strike the Assyrians at Aphex till you have destroyed them. There's an absence of passion here. There's sort of a okay, if you know, I, I love you, man, and I'll do it. All right, hit the arrows on the ground. His heart is not in it. Um what would you do if if you had a chance to be around such a great figure as the prophet Elijah? And he says, I want you to, I want you to hit that punching bag. <laughs> I would beat that punching bag <laughs> so bad. It would, until <laughs> he had to, oh, I can't go anymore. Uh, that's what's missing here. He's saying, show me what you would do to the Assyrians if you could with these arrows. Okay, one, two, three. So he struck three times and he stopped. That's it. And the prophet is disappointed. There's no enthusiasm here for the defense of God's people for the possession of the land of God's people. Ten, ten times would have been impressive. Seven at least, a number of completion. This is low-grade zeal, and it brought less than an impressive victory. And I read this as a Christian, and trying to serve God, and I do not want to have low-grade zeal. I've been around enough to know that when the moods are against me, that I have to fight them. I have to roll sometimes into the wind. The wind's not always behind me. And if I have enough zeal in my heart, I'm going to keep going. But if I'm nonchalant, eh, maybe I'll just go do something else. Maybe I'll just retire. Well, I'm still a young man compared to Methuselah. Verse 19, And the man of God was angry with him, And said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Because he's spiritually out of touch. This is what happens. This is the, the dying anger of a righteous prophet. Like you were there. You should have known this. And he said, You have struck. Uh, You should have struck five or six times. You should have cut loose on this. I wanted to see your disdain for what's happening to your kingdom. Imagine a pastor getting in the pulpit. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me, I mean, just sort of a monotone. I mean, some, 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 I have, there have been some people that are good book writers. They shouldn't be around pulpits. Some of them can do both. A Warren Wiersbe can do both. But there are others that, Man, that guy was so boring. I I was trying not to fall asleep. Now, I've never put anybody to sleep myself. That almost was a deal-breaker. Lord, I don't want to go preaching people sitting there sleeping. I've been up all night studying. The Lord said, yeah, anyway. And coming back to this, uh, then you would have struck Israel till you destroyed it. So this half-hearted warfare. And the prophet identifies it. And the king does not object. He knows he's busted. Mediocre ministry does not help. It hurts people. If you serve in the church, serve. I mean, serve. You're serving the Lord God. You're, you're God. Um, I'm sing. you know, if there's nobody around, sing what you serve. I mean, get in the spirit. There must be a degree of enthusiasm in God's work, especially over critical appointments. How unlike David, David showed us how. Psalm 18, you have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. But now you will strike Syria only three times and we'll see that come up at the end. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Well, verse 20, then Elijah died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it's not by accident that his death is attached to more complications in the land, more attacks, um, the the chariot of Israel. You remember, Elisha prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant to see that the chariots of the Lord were, were more than the enemy, and and now that's that's just all going away. Verse twenty one. So it was when they were burying a man, suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. So here they are. Uh, this is not this is a divine statement. It is not magic. It's God is using this moment, uh, apparently without. Such miracles at this time, Israel would not have survived as a people, and that's why they're here. Bones are figurative. Uh, it's not literal. He didn't decay, and there's his skeletal remains. The Jews did not embalm. They washed, and they, they entombed, or they buried. And uh, they're having this interment. The mourners see that the Moabites are coming. they got to hurry up and do something with the body. They have enough time and space so they said, well, look, just put him here. I mean, and open the lid or however it was. And they, they lower the man uh, on top of Elijah or next to him. And he touches, makes contact, and he comes to life. Um, they recognized likely immediately what was going on. They knew this was the prophet's tomb. Um, I, I mean, it would be kind of spooky today to <laughs> see something like this. But uh, that's what happened. It informed the nation that though the prophet was gone, Yahweh was still amongst them. Though he is dead, the promises are not dead. And this is um, it, this got back to the king, of course. And it's all the promises that the prophet spoke, they're going to happen. Ministry beyond the grave—not the first time. Samuel, we saw Samuel, and you know, Saul, Moses, and Elijah will show up at the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, uh, we run out of time. I could make another analogy about Peter and John, but we'll just move forward. Verse 22, Then Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoiaz. So it breaks out of the parentheses, comes back to the historical overview. Verse 23, The Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. So this is an anointed uh, comment on the events. This is the second time, and the only twice in First and Second Kings, are the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mentioned. We now look at verse 24. Now Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. Again, Ben-Hadad is not his name. It is an assumed throne name. Um, if you've been watching anything with the Queen of England, you see that there, man, they just so many rules and and traditions and regulations. I, I don't see how they can keep up. Uh, anyway, verse 25. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoiaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben hadad the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoiaz, his father, by war. Three times Jehoash defeated him and recaptured the cities. Well, just as the prophet said, you struck the ground three times, so only three times you will, you will hit them. It will be inadequate. Uh, uh, and that's, that's pretty much it for this section for tonight. We're out of time. Uh, it's, we've said everything we've got to say. A uh, very informative chapter. Stands out to me as the, the passion to be loved like that as a man of God it's a, a noble thing, but it would certainly be nicer if the king would just repent to preach to someone so effectively only for them to say, nah, I don't believe it. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, oh, why not? How can you do that? All right, let's pray. Our Father, this evening, your word returns not void, and we love it. We pray we do better at serving you. We pray that we do better at loving others, even those that are not lovable. We pray we would be more like Christ because of your spirit in us. We ask that you get us all home safely tonight in Jesus' name.